Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our 2021 Elul Learning Series. Rabbi Dr. Arye Cohen is one of my favorite people and favorite teachers um, and someone who, when I was in rabbinical school, I got to quite literally take a class about social justice in our tradition. And so whenever there is something to talk about having to do with social justice in our tradition, he is the first person who I think of to go to. Uh, and I'm sure he will tell us a little bit about why this is interesting to him and how this topic came up. Uh, but just as a tribute to, to him and to the work that he does, one of the things that I admire most is that his eyes and ears are always open uh, to what's going on really on the ground and how we could be doing better. So Rabbi Cohen is going to uh, teach us, I'm sure, through wonderful text um, and other things about what else we could be doing to make the world a little bit of a better place. Thank you, Rabbi Schatz. Um, it's always a pleasure to appear with you to learn from you now, you're, you know, as, as my rabbi. Um, uh, so, yeah, so it's a pleasure to see everybody here. Um, I know some of you. I don't know others of you, but um, there we go. So I'm going to teach for a while, and then uh, once I run out of things to say, I will um, ask you to participate. If you have questions, you can put them in the chat. I'm not very good at reading the chat while I am teaching, but I will read them at the end. Or if uh, Rabbi Schatz uh, sees something very interesting, she can pick it up while we're going. So a couple of months ago, maybe three months ago, two months ago, I was coming to uh, Daily Minion, and uh, I had parked in the tennis tennis thing, the tennis building down uh, um, La Cienega. Um, usually, I, usually I walk, but I had to go someplace else. So I was coming south on uh, La Cienega. I crossed Olympic. And at the little um, mini mall there, uh, there was a man, obviously homeless, who was dragging a, a, a wheelie suitcase plus a couple of other plastic, large plastic cartons of his belongings, um, and I said hello to him, as I say hello to most people on the street. Um, and he said hello to me. And then I started walking. And after a couple of steps, he said, are you going into the synagogue? And I said, yes. And he said, oh, I'd like to go into the synagogue. Um, and then he told me his Hebrew name, which I have forgotten by now. He told me his name. He said, told me his Hebrew name. He said, you know, I'm, I want to go into the synagogue. I want to learn Hebrew. So I said, well, you know, it's um, it's 7.30 in the morning. Nobody's going to be teaching Hebrew now. Uh, we're going to pray. He said, okay, I want to pray. And it's obviously, it was obvious to me that what he wanted was a place to sit down for, for a little bit. Um, and I said, fine, you know, you're probably not, they probably won't let you take your stuff in, but, uh, or they'll put it on the side, but let's, you know, so he, I, I walked down the street with him to the front of the, of the, of Betham. Um, and uh, he had a, a mask, um, but they, they, uh, the security people said did not allow him in. Um, it wasn't their call. It was, you know, whatever higher ups in the security. And I spoke to whoever it was, and there were very different, various different reasons. Um, COVID, um, soon the children were coming for the day school. Um, in short, 
he was left on the outside. They refused. They didn't allow him in. And I went into Davin, which, and I was very disturbed. Spoke to Rabbi Klickfeld. And the end of it is this, uh, we had a nice conversation about security and, and, and homelessness. But it seems to me this, this anecdote, um, in a way, crystallizes two problems that we face, two problems that we are dealing with poorly, in my opinion. Um, in in one story, those two problems are homelessness and security, right? The the threat that we feel from 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 the outside, and at, it, those two problems actually met at the gate to to Betham by uh, who was let in and who who was not let in. So I don't want to talk right now. We'll come back to this later about what the right answer is, um, if there is a right answer. Um, uh, or what an answer is to to what could have happened there. Uh, I want to go back and do a little bit about talk a little bit about these two problems. Talk a little bit about um, homelessness, and I'm, I imagine everybody on the call re- realizes that we have a homelessness problem. I want to you know do a little bit of, of numbers, um, and then talk a little bit about that intersection of that what happens of, of, around security. So. I'm going to share my screen. So just as, as kind of a baseline, um, there are 41, this is from the 2020 homelessness count, and it's, it's more now. There are 41,290 homeless people experiencing homelessness or houselessness. Um, lots of homeless people don't like the, the word homeless because, because of the fact that they don't have a house doesn't necessarily mean they don't have a home, and there are communities of houseless people. Um, so, but uh, here they, they're using the word homelessness. Um, so 41,290, which is up 16% in one year. In the county, it's 66,436 and up 13%. Um, a quarter of all the homeless or houseless folks in California are in Los Angeles County. And uh, we are we have the distinction of being the state with the highest number of houseless people in the country. Um, New York follows us, but by a, by a, a good bit. Um, homelessness is a regional challenge. It's not us. Uh, Southern California, only one county's homeless count decreased, which is San Diego, while other five counties increased between 3% and 5%. And then to get a little bit of an understanding of the scope of the problem or the causes of the problem, um, it comes from uh, an inadequate housing supply. 500, uh, LA needs 500 9,000 new affordable housing units to meet current demand. Now, if you remember, if you're saying to yourself, oh, but what about Proposition HHH and JJJ, which is supposed to supply housing and services? So HHH, which was supposed to supply um, houses, is caught up in the courts because of lawsuits, which are trying to get it thrown out by developers and others. Um, so that's why that's so the, um, a, a minuscule percentage of the houses that that was supposed to fund have been built. Um, the second cause is systemic racism, uh, which leads to a disproportionate number of Black people becoming homeless in LA County. 8% of the overall population is Black, but Black people represent 34% of those experiencing houselessness. And then finally, uh, wages have not kept pace with rents. So there is a massive uh, income disparity in Los Angeles, as you all probably know. 
Um, rich people have gotten much rich, much richer, and those who are amazingly rich have gotten even richer, um, while uh, wages on the bottom end have not kept up. And so renters in L.A. County need to earn $41.96 per hour, which is 2.8 times the city of L.A. minimum wage to afford the average monthly asking rent of $2,182. And so we are not, there's the, there's, it's a, a baseline economic situation that with one job, um, it's hard to afford housing. And therefore we have this situation where we have 40, <clears throat> 41,290 people in the city and six, almost 67,000 people in the county who are houseless. And houseless means that they are on the street or they're um, couch surfing. They're going from house to house. And actually there's more. The truth is that over the past number of years, um, there's been an increase in the number of people on the street, even though there's been a de- decrease in the number of people who are couch surfing, who are like who are uh, who are who are at liter- who are houseless, but are figuring out how to get by. Now there is also a vicious cycle because if a person is on the street, then it's hard for them to get a job because they it's hard for them to appear presentable in order to to apply for a job. Um, if they can't get the job, then they can't get off the street. And that kind of vicious cycle continues around and around. And this has gotten worse during COVID, even though there are certain uh, things that are supposed to project, project room key was supposed to be a way to get homeless people out uh, off the street, but only one, like something like 10% of, of the rooms that were supposed to uh, house people during the pandemic were used. And, uh, it surprisingly, it turned out that uh, hotel owners agreed to Project Roomkey because they thought it would be a way to up their income during the pandemic. And then when they thought that saw that uh, tourism was going to start again, they stopped. They pulled out their participation in Project Roomkey. Um, so, uh, in short, we have a very almost you know a, a problem with with houselessness. Um, which uh, is endemic and has been going on for decades. Right? There's uh, just a recent report about the history of houselessness, but it's just going on. In, in, and so therefore we have people on the street. Um, and houselessness is a problem which is at the kind of core of our concerns, um, Jewish concerns. And Isaiah lists it as one of those things in, in the Haftarah that we read on Yom Kippur, um, Yom Kippur Day, after after uh, we read from Torah, um, and there he blasts. Is Isaiah has this has this um, thing where he blasts people who are going to temple and taking part in ritual commandments and fulfilling ritual commandments while ignoring moral, what we'd call moral or ethical um, demands. So here, this is this is famous for anybody who's been in Shul on Yom Kippur and has paid attention. Um, Isaiah says, is this such the fast I desire, a day for men to starve their bodies? Is it bowing the head like a bulrush and lying in sackcloth and ashes? Do you call that a fast, a day when the Lord is favorable? No, this is the fast I desire, God speaking, to unlock the fetters of wickedness and untie the cords of the yoke to let the oppressed go free, to break off every yoke, it is to share your bread with the hungry and to take the wretched poor into your home. When you see the clothed, the naked, to clothe them and not to ignore 
your own kin, and on. And then you shall, shall your light burst through like the dawn, etc., and so forth. And so Isaiah, I mean, it's kind of amazing that the rabbis have us read this on Yom Kippur after you know a half day of fasting and praying, reminding us that maybe what you should actually should do is leave now and come back after you've fulfilled your obligations to the poor of your town. And actually, there is a, a law that any fast day on which um, uh, money and food is not distributed to the poor is considered an abomination. Um, and so there is, it's not, you know, the, the enacting of what Isaiah is basically saying is not, and he finishes off by saying, if you refrain from trampling the Sabbath, from pursuing your affairs on my holy days, if you call the Sabbath delight, Lord's holy day honor, if you honor and, and go not your ways, then you can seek the favor of the Lord. Isaiah is not saying forget about halacha. Isaiah is not saying forget about Shabbat and Chag and all those things. Isaiah is saying before you get there, that's kind of the prize. That's at the end of the line. First, you have to do all these prerequisites of poverty, which is you have to take care of the poor. You can't, what I is saying is here, you're, you're walking to the temple, and uh, and he means the temple of Jerusalem. You're walking to the temple, and on the side of the road are, are people living in, in tents and, and can't afford food, but you're going to go sacrifice your animals at the temple. Or you're walking to, you know, we're all walking to Beth Am, past the people who are sitting in the streets, and um, that's not the way it should be. So... Um, as in, you know, and houselessness becomes a part of, of the, uh, what the rabbis called the things that are tzorchei aniim, the things that impoverished people need, starting from the, it was explicitly mentioned starting from like the 12th century. It's called Mador in Hebrew. Um, and uh, uh, so there's, it's obvious that there is a, we have an obligation towards, uh, to do something, to do something real about this massive problem of homelessness. And, and to do something real, me, and well, the reason I say to do something real is because there are ways we can do stuff. In other words, it's important when you see a homeless person on the street to talk to them, give them some money. But you have to do that in the idea that that's not doing anything, right? It's good to do that, to remind yourself, to remind ourselves that they are part of our community. But that's not doing anything. That's not solving the problem. The problem needs to be solved structurally. It has to be, it can't be that in, one of the richest uh, metropolitan areas in the world, um, there are homeless people. So that's problem number one, right? Now, why is this Betham's problem? So on the one hand, it's Betham's problem because of the fact that we own a block of La Cienega, right? We are in the public space. And that doesn't, and being in the public space in Halakha means that we have a certain amount of responsibility towards the public space. Right? In the public space, you're not allowed to do all kinds of things. You can't build you know, a pit. You can't uh, put things that are damaging out in the public space. But also, being in the public space and part of the public space, the fact that we don't pay taxes because we're a 51c3, the fact all these kind of things because we're a nonprofit or religious, we have a certain responsibility, I would argue, to what's going on in the public space, especially what's going on right outside our door. Right? Now, what is that? What does that look like? In other words, we just built a beautiful new sanctuary, which I actually love dominating in every day. And it's actually, you know, kind of the silver silver lining to the cloud is that when there are only 15 people in there, it's even nicer than when there are a couple hundred people in there. But, um, you know, we spent a gazillion dollars, and that's more or less, um, on a, a new sanctuary. Um, but we, you know, so the question is, what do we, what is our obligation be to, use our resources to solve a problem that's happening right outside our door, not even down the block, 
right? Right outside our door. Our kids are all, we're all friendly with homeless people who are hanging out at the, you know, whatever the 7-Eleven is on the corner. I don't know if it's a, um, but we are impact. We are, we own part of the, of the public square. And therefore we are, that is part of that. That is, that is our obligation. Then the question is, but what about the downside? In other words, what about the other side of that? We have the reason we can't, you know, the reason that that homeless person could get in to, to synagogue was because we have this very elaborate security system, which includes armed guards and electronic gates and video cameras. And what's the, what is, what is the status of that? I mean, we, there is, everybody knows there's a, you know, there's Pikuach Nefesh, there's an obligation to, to protect life. But what's going on when we have this level of security and what's going on when I will ask in a minute, when I will question in a minute whether we need that level of security and what level of risk? Is there a basis for taking risk? Right now there are, we have a day school, we have um, people, you know, if, we, if there's no security, people coming right off the street and there is some risk involved in that. So I, I want to put out one, you know, a couple of things that um, um, we don't have time here to go into more in depth or maybe we do later, but there's no, you know, I spent a lot of time looking for, for articles which analyze the efficacy of armed security in places of worship and couldn't find anything. There were lots of articles that talked about how to do armed security. There are lots of articles that claim that if you do X, Y, and Z, it will be, you will be more secure. But there are no articles from people who are not trying to sell you security um, who evaluated whether or not armed security is better or worse. What we do know is that, you know, when, if there is, armed security is, you know, there in case there's, an, there's a, a mass shooting event. We do know that in cases of mass shooting events, the killings happen in the first 90 seconds. The role of the armed security is to get shot um, before, and, and, and in that period of time after they get shot, so that hopefully police will come or or the the people will be will be deterred. The reason for armed security, as was laid out by our security company, the Bethlehem Security Company, in a briefing by that was put together by the Federation security people, was to make Bethlehem a hard target. What that means is, is as the person explained it, a hard target means that if a shooter comes to Bethlehem, they won't. They'll say, "Oh, you know, it's too much trouble. We'll go and we'll attack the church down the block or the synagogue down the block." Now that's a very telling statement. I mean, from the security point of view, that's probably what they want to do. But from our point of view as a shul, is our point so that the arm, the, the shooter goes and shoots somebody else? Right? What is it? What are we teaching? And, and every time anybody passes through the armed guards, that's a teaching moment. We teach our kids in the day school, we teach our, or we, we, we preach from the pulpit about the way in which we are responsible for each other, in which we have solidarity with other, commu- other communities. But in order to get there, we walk through armed guards. What we're actually teaching is that outside is dangerous and inside is safe. And we have to be wary of outside. And no matter what else we teach kids, they will learn that. They will learn that inside here is safe from all those other people outside. Now, so I wanted to talk a little bit about, we could talk more about that later, but I think that's very important, especially since the question, a lot of the question of of the level of security we have has more to do with fear of litigation, and there are a bunch of lawyers here, but their fear of litigation than anything else that you have to have, 
your security has to be up to the level of that's that's in the field that people do so that uh, if somebody sues you, sues Beth Am, they can say, well, we did everything we we're supposed to do. And what's everything you're supposed to do is a very, it's kind of a moving target. It's what other people decide to do. So if somebody puts a tank in front of, in front of their synagogue, so we're going to have to figure out whether or not to put a tank in front of our synagogue. But what I want to talk about for a minute is, is the other side of it, is the risk. And the Gemara actually addresses this face on, head on. So this is from Mishnah from Baba Batra, Kofino to Livnot Beit Shar Vedelet Lechatzer, Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel Amirlo, Kola Chatzirot Ruyot Beit Shar. So they may coerce a person who lives in a, now they're talking about a courtyard, and um, courtyard situation is where there are houses around a central area, and each house is owned by a different person or lived in by a different person. And so one of those people, one of those people, if they decide to, when they decide to build a gate and a gatehouse for the courtyard, um, they, meaning everybody, the people, kind of the the tenant, the uh, housing committee, can coerce a single person to participate in the building of the gatehouse and the gate for the joint courtyard. Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel says, Not all courtyards need a gate. Says, well, once you're starting with public policy, if you're going to force people to do stuff, and when they mean, when they say force, they really mean force. <clears throat> Another situation when they're talking about force, they're talking about tying people to trees and, and whipping them. So they're not just talking about the Federation calling you up and saying you, you made a pledge, but they're talking about, you know, kind of coercive force. So Rabbanil says that it has there has to be a good reason for you to do that. You can't just have any reason to have a, a courtyard. So now that's the that's the Mishnah. There's a an interesting Gemara which follows, and we're and that Gemara talks about a story of um, the prophet Elijah and a righteous person. Now, the prophet Elijah is a very unique character in Talmud. The prophet Elijah's job was to explain was to go between heaven and earth, because if you all remember your two kings, um, Elijah didn't die, but uh, at the end of his life he went up. To heaven in a char- in a fire- fiery chariot, and gave Elisha his his uh, his mantle. So Elijah, according to the rabbis, didn't die. Elijah comes back and forth from heaven to earth on a bunch of different things. One of the, my favorite job that Elijah does is every morning he wakes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob up in order so that they can say praise to to God, the Kedavan. And uh, but then he rushes down to go to the Beit Midrash to study. And he comes late to the Beit Midrash, and the rabbis there scream at him, why are you coming late to the Beit Midrash? And he has to explain to them that it takes a long time because he has to make sure that Abraham went back to sleep before Isaac gets up, and that Isaac went back to sleep before Jacob gets up. Because if everybody's up together, then redemption will come, and it's not time yet. So that's one of, that's one of Elijah's jobs. But Elijah's major job is just going back and forth to <clears throat> from heaven to earth and explaining. And so there's this righteous person who Elijah would study with. Until that person built a, a built a gatehouse to the, his courtyard, and then Elijah disappeared. And so the Gemara asks, "Why did that happen?" And it figure and, and the Gemara goes through um, all kinds of different possibilities for why that happened. Basically, summing up that a gatehouse prevents poor people from uh, coming in and asking for money, and prevents people who live inside from hearing. The voice, hearing the shouts, hearing the cries of the poor people. So that's what's bad about this, this gatehouse. So now, Rabbi Menachem Amiri is here from the 13th century, beginning of the 14th century, in Perpignan, France, which is in in, in Jewish 
in the Jewish geography is known, that's known as Provence, um, south southeastern France. <coughs> Excuse me. In his in his commentary on this piece of Talmud says, Beit Mishnah. This gatehouse, which the Mishnah is talking about, that the that the people in the courthouse can force each other to build. It's only in a case where there's not even an iota of sin. If there is an iota of sin, and what does that iota of sin mean? That is made in a way that poor people cannot enter. Publicly, and they have to scream from outside. And their their voice is not heard. Because the gatehouse uh, uh, stops the voice, stops his voice, or acts as a buffer. In that case, they can't force each other to be part of it. And so, this is a, a, an amazing um, statement, right? That if there's any iota of sin, and here. Um, the Meiri is pointing to the fact that the poor people have to be able to enter. Now, I would suggest, and, and in a minute we're going to talk about that, this doesn't only mean poor people, because when poor people can enter, there's a certain danger which for which the gatehouse was built in the first place. You don't want people coming in. You don't want people, it's a possibility people will steal stuff. It's a possibility people will see there's a very big, uh, the rabbis have a very, very high bar of privacy. So public possibility people will see into your house what you're doing. Any of those dangers are overridden by this fact that the poor people should be able to have access. And if we take a look at, at the uh, um, uh, the Meiri's earlier contemporary, earlier, well, not a contemporary, he lived actually, early, he was an earlier guy. He lived earlier. Um, he lived, he was in Spain, a little bit south of, of the Meiri. And he goes through the, basically summarizes um, the discussion and then ends it in an interesting way. If you were to say that if our Mishnah refers to a case in which there is no door on the gatehouse, or that there is a door but no lock and key, or that there is a lock and key but it is on the outside, why do we course want to participate, right? If that's what the Gemara says. If you want to have a gatehouse, it has to be a gatehouse that somebody can walk right through, right? There has to be, and it can't be a barrier at all. So then the Miri says, so what does that help? Isn't it so that the residents of a courtyard might only coerce each other in a matter in which there is a benefit or the removal of harm? If you're going to coerce the other people in the, the courtyard to chip in for what you want to do, then it has to be something which is a benefit and especially a removal of harm. Yet here, what benefit is there? And what harm is removed from the courtyard with this gatehouse? For certainly when the poor can enter, so too can thieves enter. Still, this makes no difference. And that last line, right, he says that there, if you have this kind of a gatehouse where anybody can enter and no, you know, and so if anybody can enter, not only the poor can enter, but thieves can enter, that makes no difference. So what I think is going on here is that the, the, the Yad Ramah, Amira Alevia Abulafia, is saying is that your right to protect yourself is not absolute. There is a certain level of risk that you have to take because there are other values. And it seems to me that that's what we're talking about here. In other words, that there is, it's not true. Americans have a very low risk tolerance across the board. But it's not true that, you know, I'll I'll stop sharing my screen. It's not true that um, 
the question of risk trumps the question of what else would happen. So I want to go back. So what else could happen? In other words, so it's not just so we have this problem of homeless folks not being able to have access to the building or not being able to sit down or nothing, just being on, on the street in front of us. But it's not only that. It's like when we when we have this level of security, there are a lot of people, there are, there are members of our temple of Beth Am who have been profiled by our security. And not only that, but every, I, for a while I was working on a project with uh, Ben the Ark about temple security, synagogue security. Every rabbi and executive director that I spoke to had a story about their own members who were profiled by their own security, right? whether it's um, African-American or it was um, uh, Mizrahi members. Actually, the head of CSI once told me, he's a reserve LAPD officer, but he said that when he was in the LAPD, nine times out of 10, when there was a call for, in, in which somebody said, a Middle Eastern looking man is hanging outside our synagogue, send a cop, nine times out of 10, it was a Mizrahi Jew. So there is a whole, there is a, and, and Ilana Kaplan, who runs the um, uh, uh, Jews of Color Field Project, said a very interesting thing, which I never thought of before. We talk a lot about um, people who are, you know, um, unaffiliated. But how do we know how many people are unaffiliated and how many people have been unaffiliated because they come to the synagogue and they realize with all, um, with, with all the security, they're not wanted? Who's being protected? And we know that in, you know, when we talk about police in general, who is being protected and who isn't in, in the whole defund the police conversation, who is the we who will be in danger if there are no more police, but leave that to the side. But in our synagogue, our security people, who are they trained to identify as people who belong in shul and people who don't? And so all these things are more than an iota of sin of keeping people out of the synagogue. Now, the question is, when we go back, so to go back to the story in the beginning, obviously at that point, it wasn't the security guards fault. They're not at fault or they're not, you know, they did what they, what they have been trained to do. But the problem is what they aren't trained to do. They aren't trained to deal with people who are not, you know, who are not, um, who are just experiencing life, right? They're not, what is the, you know, when we think about it, what are the things, what are the, the, the biggest dangers and quote that happen in a synagogue with people who are, need to be dealt with? Number one on that list is some guy who went off their meds. Right? Number two is somebody who has some sort of a, you know, has a heart attack or a stroke in, in the synagogue. Number three are people who, you know, you have a fight. None of these things need a gun. The gun is there for the, you know, the, what my grandma used to call the neshtugadach, the things we don't want to talk about, right? The, the gun is there for the mass shooter, for the shooting event, which happens once, in that, once, you know, if we took the same concerns with airplanes, nobody would ever fly anyplace. But the regular things, and so before we talk about abolishing armed security, Rather, we can talk about other things in addition. We can talk about the fact that why doesn't our security company have social workers on staff, or at least some guards who are trained as social workers? Why doesn't the shul spend a small part of the massive budget for security on having an on-staff social worker, or at least somebody who could direct a, a homeless person to the proper place to get services, why don't we? Why don't we think of having some kind of those services 
on site. You know, it's not, there are other people who do that. So I think that all these things are, are possibilities that should be explored. Um, and that's where I'm going to stop. And I'd love to take questions. Um, before we take questions, because I'm sure people have them or comments or whatever you want to call, whatever you're going to say. Um, first of all, you can put them in the chat, which I'm happy to go through the chat and, and then kind of feed them throughout my Cohen. I, I want to ask a question, um, first about the, the Talmud piece that you, that you brought us, because one of the things that I think Betham has done really beautifully, and by a lot of the people who are on this call, which is one of the reasons that I'm thinking about it right now, is even if those people aren't being let into the building, not being blind by the fact that those people are outside of our building. Um, and so making sure that there are things that we are doing, though I agree with you, it would be lovely if there was now a step more in terms of the immediacy of someone coming to our gate and us being able to tell them what to do. But the cries were a really interesting, um, an interesting way for me to think about this because I, I'm asking you based on the text, but also based on your experience at Betham, is it important for the individuals inside those proverbial gates to hear the cry of the actual individual on the outside? Or is it enough for the people on the inside to know that those cries are happening and do something about them? Like what's the what's the importance of those cries being heard and um, and yet if action is being done, does it need to be that the cry is heard and the action is done immediately? So, and there's a third possibility, but yes. So yes, it is important that the cries be heard in the sense that you know there's a uh, in in Yerushalayim and other places in the world in Yerushalayim there is the custom is that at all weddings. Um, extra tables are set for homeless people, mm-hmm. right, for poor people um, who, you know, just come in and, and sit. And in every shul, um, there are people who come in off the street who are poor, who just, you know, who come. And, um, you know, the truth is that, that at Stiebel, um, I mean, we didn't do a lot. We just didn't have anybody at the door. We've had it for a number of different homeless folks who were part of the community for, for, for a number of, for different lengths of time. Um, so now what is, why is it important to have those people, to have people like that who are houseless have access to the inside. So there are two things going on. I think there, one, I think it's, you know, um, years ago when I started uh, organizing with CLUE, Clergy and Lady United for Economic Justice, um, and I went to meetings, they always, they always had workers at the meetings. And we were talking about, you know, talking about wage discrimination, talking about various different things. And at first I was thinking to myself, what do I need this guy? And it's usually people who speak, spoke Spanish. So it took twice as long because they had a translator. And why do I need, I can understand somebody's not being paid enough, is not being treated respectfully. I can understand that's a problem. Over time, I realized that I couldn't understand. Right? Over time, I realized that unless you see, unless you speak to someone, unless you have a relationship with another person like that, in that way, you don't really understand. That doesn't mean that I'm sure that people at Betham are, you know, are open-hearted and do a lot of good. But there's a difference between that and having homeless people as being part of 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 your your religious life, your ritual mm-hmm. life, knowing that they're part of your community. Mm-hmm. The third thing, so in addition to that, there are situations where there will be homeless people in crisis, and they're right there, 
why shouldn't we be a place, a point of response to that? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's, you know, so those things, I do think it's really important that those barriers not, that those barriers be permeable, that those barriers not be, be solid mm-hmm. for those reasons. Um, thank you for answering that question. Thanks for allowing me the prerogative to be the first person to ask. Um, Tybal, I'm going to answer your question, not because Rabbi Cohen doesn't know enough about Betham, but because um, I'll give you specific uh, answers to this, and then I'll, I'll call on Carl and then Denise. Um, so it this is something, again, like this Elul series is little tastes of things that we are hoping to make bigger priorities and bigger initiatives throughout the year. So a lot of what you're pointing to, Tybal, in your question of is is there a space for the shul where where there could be shelter, there could be food and water? A lot of what Rabbi Cohen just mentioned in terms of having a social worker on staff or having some kind of um, uh, the process in place so that if there still is a security guard, which I believe there still will be, um, that there would be a process by which that security guard isn't just saying no, but there are steps beyond just the no to get that person the help that they're asking for. We at Temple Betham, before COVID hit, um, opened up a food pantry that was available for people to get food. The way that it worked was that People within Betham could bring food and get food if they were food vulnerable, and people could take food out and give it to the people who were on the street who they might see on their walk home. So there is that. We applied for Safe Parking LA, um, and were actually denied uh, because we were not a space that they, at the time, of course, all of this is before COVID, and so it's possible that we would be accepted after COVID, I don't know. Um, But we weren't a spot that they needed any longer because it was too close to other places that had already been granted access to have safe parking LA. Um, So these are all things, it was a great question. And I just wanted you to know that these are things that are either starting or or are in place or are definitely going to be picking up um, after the high holidays, hopefully, as long as COVID allows us to. Um, okay, Carl, go ahead, and then Denise. I guess I'd like to try as at least a thought experiment <clears throat> to, to push the what-ifs a little bit further even than, than you related. You, you said, what if uh, uh, a houseless person uh, shows up at our front gate and, and wants to chill for an hour? Well, what if, and it's happened in many areas, not far from us at all, uh, a houseless person wants to put their tent up on that lovely wide sidewalk we have in front of Betham and without obstructing passage for everybody else. What would we think of that? And what are the negatives of that? And I don't know, are there any pros of that? Uh, would we imagine, uh, you know, bringing that guy some food each day or, or let him come in to use the restroom or, I don't know. It's it's hard questions. It's it's uh, uncomfortable to think about some of these things, and yet we probably should. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for that question, Carl. I, what I would I would say that so first of all, <clears throat> if you don't know, um, the City Council just passed Resolution forty eight ten, Measure forty eight ten, which actually was already on the books, but they passed something so that it should be uh, uh, enforced more strongly. Um, though it depends on 
it's actually then under the option of each um, uh, council district, how much it's enforced. But measure 4810 um, more or less says that uh, people cannot, it's called the the, uh, sit or lie um, measure. Um, And more or less houseless people cannot sit or lie on the sidewalk, basically any place in Los Angeles. There's almost no place that they can sit or lie, it can't be in front of a school, it can't be in front of a synagogue, it can't be in front of, it can't be in front of a homeless shelter, it can't be in, there's all kinds of map. If you look at the map of where people cannot, where homeless people are not allowed to sit or lie, it's basically most of the city. And this is, I think that this is what, you know, in, in my mind, this is a, a sodomite law. This is a law of, that is, is evil. Um, and uh, I think that if, if somebody sets up a tent in front of Beth Am, as opposed to down the block where they have set up tents, um, across the street where they've set up tents. Um, it's because they have no other place to be. I think that the the question doesn't start at the moment that they set up the tent. The question has to go back to why are they on the street? Nobody wants to, well, not nobody, but almost nobody wants to live on the street, given an alternative. Um, and given an alternative that's that's doable, you know, that's sustainable. Um, and so <clears throat> I, I think that the answer would be if somebody is living in front of Beth Am that, uh, you know, we find out who they are and, and bring, you know, let them use the facilities or try to figure out ways to get them into permanent housing. I mean, I think that they become our responsibility in a very, very powerful way. Um, and I, I think that that's just what happens when we live in a city where we are part of the city and we have not fulfilled our obligations to people in the city. We have not fulfilled our obligations that people in the city should have places to rest their head, shelter. Denise. So um, I struggle a lot to understand um, with lots of social issues. Where's the, I don't know if dividing line is the right word, but it feels like there's kind of a difference between public and private and big picture, little picture, individual group. So I'm just sort of like, I don't understand how to navigate that. I don't understand how it seems that it is different, small picture versus big picture, but I don't understand how or why. That's in a general concept. In a very specific concept, even in the example you describe, okay, I'm going to ask something that I would never have the guts to do myself. I'm a big chicken. I'm a very fearful person. Um, But you sound like you're not. And so, so my question is, um, in the easier said than done category, what would stop you, personally you, from saying to this guy, you know what, you can't come in, we had to pre-register, it's a whole thing, Um, why don't we get a donut and a coffee at 7-Eleven and go across the street to the park and say the schma together or something, and if you were able to do that a couple of times, you might be able to vouch for him that he's safe to be around, um, you know, and who knows what could flow from that. Yeah, no, I think that's a perfectly legitimate question. And at that moment, I made the choice to go in, which I felt really bad about afterwards. Um, but I've, I've, on many occasions, I've uh, eaten with uh, houses, people on the street. I've taken them for coffee. I've, I've, I've done exactly what you said. Um, I don't think that that would, solve the problem. I don't, I mean, that's not solving the problem. That's, that's a, you know, that's, that is the reason I did that when I did that. Um, and I do that is because of the fact, um, 
you know, they are part of the community because they are there in, in place where I walk. And I started doing it in Philadelphia when I lived in um, downtown Philadelphia um, because they were all, you know, I'd, I'd walk in the morning, uh, around, you know, from my house to the coffee shop and there'd be houses people all over. So I just started getting to know them and and eating with them and talking with them um, because they're part of, of the community. And here there are certain people in the neighborhood who I have that relationship with too, and other people do also. Um, so I think that's a perfectly legitimate question. I'm not sure that that, um, you know, the question of how to, the question of do you vouch for, for you know, do you, do you, is that a way to vouch for somebody rather than having a professional who's a, so, who has social work training on our staff along with um, or as one of the security people to do, be able to do a much quicker intake or be able to, you know, ask the right questions, have professional training, be able to know how to provide services or point this person in the right way, or to have a place where the person could just, you know, sit down for a while. Um, I think is a different, a whole different level of thing. I think each individual responsibility is one thing. And we have a communal responsibility also. Thanks for that question. Larry and Diane. Thank you. Uh, I apologize because I came in late, so maybe Ari addressed this issue. I don't know if this is what Denise was talking about, uh, but it seems to me there needs to be a balance between our compassion and what we do individually and as a society, and then care for those of us who um, want to live our lives. I happen to live uh, <clears throat> near a corner, which has a lot of homeless people uh, regularly. I've gotten to know some of them, reached out, done what I, what I can. But there are others who occasionally are there who are violent, who <clears throat> yeah, make people feel unsafe just walking through the corner. Uh, Diane sometimes is very uncomfortable walking down Sherborne to the corner of Kiklo if, if some people are there. Um, it, it's not, it hasn't happened lately. But there was a period of about two years where there were a group of people who were very aggressive, uh, actually assaulted me on several occasions. And it seems to me that we're not taking into account the impact that some of the homeless actually have on the quality of life for those of us who still have compassion, want to do something, want policies to be uh, helpful for them, but don't want to be afraid. And I'm just wondering how you respond to that. That's a great question, Larry. And, and I, you know, you are a compassionate person. I know that you, you know, your interactions with homeless are great. Um, the, the you're pointing exactly to the right issue. And the, the you know, just as um, you know, a friend of mine used to say, "Poor people aren't dangerous; poverty is dangerous." So just as um, you know, people who are on the street are, you know, so there are many studies that have shown that for every week a person is on the street, there is um, a permanent uh, mental health damage. And so if a person's been on the street for a while, obviously they are impacted because of the fact, if you think about it, if you're on the street, you're in a constant state of heightened awareness, um, anxiety, all this kind of stuff that goes through. And so people end up, you know, with, with serious, some people with serious mental health issues. And I know, you know, they're on PICO, they're on. So the answer is not whether or not we as individuals should be more or less compassionate. The that answer, and that's a different topic than what we're talking about here in terms of the temple and and you know 
that. But the answer is is structural. The answer is public policy and advocacy and and building houses and having um you know housing with uh with with uh services and you know the the solution the only solution that has ever worked for homelessness is housing um there you know ohio um not ohio iowa build housing for all their home now all of iowa has as many people as pico robertson okay but so it's a different level of problem. But the only solution to houselessness is 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 homes, just like the only solution to poverty is money. You know, if you so it's not it, I have no um, I'm not making a claim. We're not asking people to solve the problem of homelessness. Right. Well, I am. But I'm not saying you personally have to solve the problem. of homelessness. I'm asking people to come together to advocate. Yes. But to advocate for more humane policies, for affordable housing, for wraparound services, all this stuff, which will, it'll take a while because we've worked on creating the problem for a while. It'll take a while, but that will solve the problem of homelessness. What I'm saying is right now, what do we as a community in the form of Beth Am, what is that responsibility to the people who are on the street in front of Beth Am? Not asking, you know, the, the question that was raised here was not what you, Larry, have, what your responsibility is to the person on the corner. Now, the problem then comes, and this is part of a larger problem of security and policing, that what are your options for the person on, on the corner, right? So a lot of people will just call 911, right? And 911 will often bring a police officer who, if he doesn't end up shooting a person who's having a mental breakdown or seems dangerous, will then incarcerate them or put them under a 72-hour uh, uh, you know, hold and, and then uh, put them, you know, let them out someplace else in the city, which is not a problem, which is not a solution to any problem that we have. Now, what I would say, you know, in the larger discussion is we have to divest a lot of the money that we're giving to the police to solve, to solve in quotes, these problems and give that money to social services so that they can various different forms so that people can actually find solutions. People actually find housing. People could actually have the services that they need, but that's a different question and a really important question. That's a different question than what, you know, Beth Am's responsibility is as a community, as a, an institution that borders on the public space and is part of the public space. Thank you for the question. Thank you. Okay, Carl. And we have just about five more minutes. So if anybody has any other questions, you can put them in the chat or I will call on you after I call on Carl. Okay. I had what I might be a quick follow-up from my tent on the sidewalk in front of Beth Am. What about if it crossed the street? We have this big old empty lot there. A few times a year, it's used for a parking lot for special events. Most of the year, it's not used at all. I get it. The developer wants to keep it in their possession and ready to be developed and not set a precedent for, I don't know, some other use. But gee, it seems like there's a lot of waiting lots all around the city if they could arrange some kind of uh, easement or temporary use permit that would allow people to camp on them, put in some toilets and sinks. Wow, wouldn't that be a good thing? Brilliant. And actually, it's being done in some places. Mike Bonin, Mike, in Santa Monica, they do that a little bit. There are little houses. I don't know if you know about this little house movement, the houses that are just like enough for, you know, one person with some electricity and, and, and some... Uh, you know, utilities um, and uh, in, in, in vacant lots. And so the question, it's always a NIMBY question. 
right? It's always a question of not in my backyard. And so that, that's a great idea. It's a perfect idea, right? You know, we have a big lot across the street. It belonged to the Kabbalah Center, I think, for a while. I don't know what it belongs to now. But if we could have, you know, if, if there could be a, a way for the city to say, you're not using this lot, we'll rent it from you. We'll set up small houses. And anybody wants it can can come and, and, and have a house. We'll have services. We'll have, you know, so that people will have, um, you know, there'll be on-site social workers, uh, people, doctors will visit, nurses will visit, whatever it is. Um, that would be brilliant. That'd be great. I mean, that's the beginning of a problem. But the problem is, the problem is the NIMBY problem, right? When Garcetti, in one of his uh, failed attempts to address homelessness, said he was going to set up um, housing for homeless people in every council district, right? So that it spread out around the city. Every council district decided that it wasn't the right place for these homes, right? The NIMBY problem is a serious one. We had this right here on, on, on Robertson. There is a 10-bed um, halfway house for, for folks who had um, who were suffering from mental, mental challenges. I don't know exactly what it is. And they wanted to add a bed. And I never saw people get mobilized so quickly to not have that. So I think that your idea is perfect. Now what we have to do, now, now start advocating for it. Call Caretz. Call, you know, you know, start saying, look, we have a place. Well, we don't have, we have, we have a place. We have people. Let's just move the people into the place. A, a quick distinction, P- putting some little houses or any kind of longer term facilities uh, on lots is going to raise a lot of nimbyism. But if you pitch it more as, hey, they're already putting their temporary tents up on your sidewalks. This way, at least you get them off your sidewalks and they're still just a temporary camping place. And when the developer wants to build his profitable office building or apartment block, okay, they have to move out and go somewhere else. But at least in the meantime, you got the tents yeah. in a better place. No, there are. <clears throat> yeah, they're called, they, they're, they're places that are designated for safe camping and safe parking. All right. The people who live in their, in their cars. Um, for example, um, ECAR does, does safe parking and... Um, um, okay, the, the, back to LA to work with them to see if something can yeah. Great idea. Thank you. There's a question from Ben in the chat to you. <clears throat> um, ah, what do you think about Lasse's LA Hop outreach request form? And if so, what are your thoughts about its efficacy? I don't know that I know what that is. Do you want to, if you give me two sentences about it, Ben, I can tell you. I don't know. Just sure. really fast. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for putting on this program. It's incredible. Um, there, there's a, with some work that I've done with some groups on the e- on the east side to uh, yeah make an outreach request form uh, make an outreach request on behalf of an unhoused person so in that oh. way where you can sort of connect with someone um, and fill it out it, you don't necessarily follow up directly but it goes to Lasa's staff and a, a outreach team follows up with the person you put the sort of address where the person was and you can have a conversation with them and um, yeah, I know people have compl- different feelings about Lhasa and their efficacy, but that's a, it's a resource that I've, I'm curious if you've encountered. Yeah, I didn't know about this specific thing. It sounds great. I, I know that I was a little involved with the uh, safe parking initiatives, which were really hard. There are very few synagogues involved in a number of churches who are involved in it. Um, it's uh, um, again, you know, Beth Am had a problem with it. 
being part of it because of the day school and, you know, the hours of in and out. And that was, you know, um, but well, yeah. and ultimately they said that we, that they didn't need us because ECAR, we applied for it at the same time as oh. ECAR and ECAR got to it faster. And so then they didn't need us because we were too close. ECAR won. ECAR won. <laughs> exactly. ECAR actually, so that was an example of where there was a, um, they did something very smart, ECAR, in that just in the sense of uh, to be a, a safe parking facility, you had to have, you had to have showers and bathrooms. And they didn't have showers. So what they did is they bought um, everybody who parked there a membership at LA Fitness. So they used mm-hmm. LA Fitness's showers, which is a really, uh, I thought, a very, a very smart um, solution mm-hmm. to that kind of problem. But I think, you know, it's those kind of like what Carl was saying. I think there are creative, we need to think about creative solutions. Ultimately, what we have to do is we have to build housing. Um, we have to build up instead of out. We have, I mean, banks have tens of thousands of houses. Um, that are empty because they've been, you know, people didn't pay their mortgage. Um, and so, I mean, there are, we have to start thinking outside the box because, you know, everybody's living outside the box. So. Thank you so much. This was a really uh, both powerful and also very informative uh, way of us thinking about how we should be taking care of our, the people right outside of our community uh, who are part of our community and who we should feel responsibility for. Um, and this is not where it ends. <laughs> um, we're not going to just have this conversation and then hope that we all do something about it. Um, but One LA is going to be kind of telling us a little bit more about their initiatives in a few weeks as part of the LO program. And then we're going to also make sure that we, um, oh, uh, Marlise is wondering if there's a way to get your sources. Um, uh, sure. I could just, if you want, I could just send them to you. Yeah. Then... Or you can put them in the chat if there's a link, but if not a link, then yeah, send them to me. Um, so please stay tuned. Um, again, this is just a taste of what's more to come. And we're hoping that this is just the catalyst to a much bigger initiative. And, uh, and we hope that Rabbi Dr. Arya Cohen will be very, very involved in helping us figure out what the right moves are to make in that. Um, and I hope you all have a great night and stay connected to this topic because we will need we will need your help and support. So thank you. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to TBA. LA.org.